Turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 20. 2 Samuel chapter 20. If you're looking in the Pew Bible there in front of you, you ought to find it on page 346. 2 Samuel chapter 20. We've been spending uh, almost two years now with, with David, the life of David. Um, the Lord's anointed king over the people of Israel. And I was thinking to this week about what people probably think of when they think about David. I would imagine a lot of people might think of David and Goliath, the story of this great victory he had. Um, some people may think of David as a musician, writing psalms, playing music. Some people might think of his uh, great sin that he committed with uh, Bathsheba and uh, committing adultery and then having her husband murdered. There are kind of these big tent poles that we think about when it comes to David's life. But when you actually read through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you find that it's, it's really a lot more up and down than that. There's a lot of, uh, of turmoil. And if you were to sit down and read through 2 Samuel, for example, by the time you got to 2 Samuel chapter 20, you would probably start to think that you might be having deja vu because David has been in this season of turmoil. Things were going pretty well. Then he started taking multiple wives, which was a bad thing. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, tried to cover it up by having her husband murdered. And then that sin set off this chain of trouble after trouble after trouble like dominoes falling one after another. And uh, as we glance at 2 Samuel 20, your, your Bible probably has a heading over it that says something like the rebellion of Sheba. And there have been several of these now. It's starting to feel like the jukebox has gotten stuck on repeat. But when you stop and think about it, that's often how life goes, isn't it? Whether it's um, matters specific to you or things that happen in the church or in the broader world, trouble tends to come in waves, not in just single drips. And through it all, as Martin Luther said in the great hymn, God's kingdom is forever. That's essentially the message of uh, this chapter that we're going to read today. God's kingdom is forever. It endures despite the sinfulness of people. And so as we read this morning, be looking for how we see God's kingdom enduring forever. So let's read together in 2 Samuel 20. We're going to begin in verse 1. Now there happened to be there a, a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. 
And there went out after him Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they, when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. One of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maacah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel, and so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was in command of the Carathites and the Pelathites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud was the recorder. And Shiva was secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jerite was also David's priest. All right, can we just admit that the Bible is weird sometimes? Yeah. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to help us today. God, I'm thankful for Your Word. Lord, I uh, sometimes as we read through Your Word, as we go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we come across some passages that, uh, Lord, we just confess seem very odd to us. And so, Lord... Uh, I'm thankful today, as you say in other parts of your word, that all Scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable. And so, Lord, I just take by faith that this chapter we've just read, as strange as it seems to us, is profitable for us. And so, God, I pray that you would help us right now by your Spirit. God, help me to give clarity to this. Help me to explain it and expound it rightly. Uh, and Lord, help us all to have ears to hear what you might say to us, what you might reveal about yourself to us in this very strange chapter. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Okay, this chapter, I, I want to just kind of start big picture. It, it begins with another attempted rebellion. This is not the first time we've seen someone try to rebel against David. So it begins with another attempted rebellion, and it ends with something we've also heard earlier in 2 Samuel, this description at the end of the chapter, this summary of David's administration. There's this list of people who were in government positions, the, the, the people who were in charge of the Carathites and the Pelethites, which was kind of like David's sort of personal uh, bodyguard guards. Uh, there's a guy who's in charge of the forced labor, which is a bad sign for the future of the kingdom. There's a recorder and a secretary and priest and all these different people. So just big picture, the, the, the point of that uh, list, of that summary at the end of the chapter is a reminder that although the chapter begins with someone who's trying to split the kingdom in half, it ends with the kingdom very much intact. Uh, the, the administration is still going. David is still king. Israel is still functioning as a nation. And so I want to summarize the, the big idea of this passage in this way. The big idea is that God's kingdom endures forever. So just trying to think, okay, how do we take this very strange passage and, and summarize it in a way that we can begin to understand uh, what in the world it has to do with us. The, the, the message is that God's kingdom endures forever. The message is here's uh, a man named Sheba who tries his very best to tear it in half, and yet at the end of the chapter, the kingdom is still standing. The kingdom endures forever. It's not, however, it's not just Sheba's sin that threatens the kingdom. There are really three men in this, in this chapter that the narrator zeroes in on. There's Sheba, but there's also Joab, and David. All of these men sin in various ways. And by showing us God's kingdom enduring despite the sin of these three men, God is showing us how His kingdom endures despite the sinfulness of all mankind. There is nothing that we could possibly do, nothing that anyone could possibly do to, uh, to put an end to the kingdom of God. And so I want us to look more closely at those three human characters Sheba, Joab, and David, and as we see their sin, we're going to see, as it were, it's like we're looking in a mirror. We're seeing a glimpse of our own sin and God's kingdom enduring despite our sin. So, first, God's kingdom endures forever despite Sheba's rebellion. Despite Sheba's rebellion. Now, we're introduced to Sheba in verse 1. And uh, there is absolutely no ambiguity about how we should evaluate him. In fact, before the author even tells us his name, the very first thing we're told about him is that he was a worthless man. Now, there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba. How would you like for that to be the first thing everybody knew about you? There happened to be a worthless man named Sheba. And uh, this fellow Sheba is intent on with not, not necessarily rebelling against David in the sense of going and trying to overthrow his kingdom, going and trying to uh, take over his throne, but his goal seems more akin to secession. He's trying to secede from within David's rule. He, he has some initial success. Verse 2 says, So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So in verse 2, the, what the, the point is the majority of the people of the nation were withdrawing from David and following Sheba. That success 
does not seem to have been long-lived, however, because by the time you get to verse 14, it's a whole different story. Look down at verse 14. It says, And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maacah, which was way in the most northern part of the kingdom. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. Now, all throughout this chapter, we're reminded that Sheba, uh, Sheba is the son of Bichri. And so when it says that all the Bichrites assembled uh, and followed him in, the author is cluing us in that, okay, it's not, in fact, all the people of Israel who are following him. It's specifically his closest family members, his brothers and sisters and cousins. So the chapter begins with him, you know, he's saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave. We're gonna, we're, we don't have any portion in David, so we're going to leave and we're going to start our own kingdom. We're going to go and look for a, a new capital. And so all the people are like, yeah, let's go follow Sheba. And they start going around. The problem is they don't seem to find anywhere that, that welcomes them and says, sure, set up your capital here. So they have to go all the way to the most northern part of the kingdom. And by the time he gets there, the only people who are still following him are his own close family members. So very few people seem willing to follow him in actually leaving from under David's rule as king. They seem to have been willing to follow him in principle, but not in reality. And even in that city uh, where they assemble and take refuge, it's not long before Joab and, and David's men arrive. They, they build up this mound. The, the way they would do this is uh, the walls of a city were, were thickest at the bottom, and so you would build up these dirt mounds and start trying to break it off at the top where the wall was a little bit thinner. And the, So they're out there, they've got battering rams, they're trying to knock down the wall. And then there's this woman, verse 16 calls her a wise woman. We never... We're never told her name. All we know is that she's a wise woman. And she goes out and negotiates with Joab. And the negotiation is, listen, Joab, you're really after one person. There's no sense in you coming in here, knocking down our walls, and risking killing a bunch of innocent people. So how about we do this? If I can go and cut off Sheba's head and throw it over the wall to you, will you, will you just leave and we'll call it a day? And Joab says, deal, sure. This woman, this anonymous woman, we ne we're never told her name, she comes across in this chapter as the wisest and most effective person in the entire chapter. Um, as for Sheba, one way we could put it is the only division that he succeeds in accomplishing in this chapter is the division of his head from his, the rest of his body. That's, that's the only thing he succeeds in doing. And so Sheba's failed revolution points to the ineffectiveness of anyone who would rebel against the Lord's kingdom. What, what happens to Sheba is a sign that points us to what's going to happen to every individual who refuses to uh, come under the saving lordship of David's descendant, Jesus. That the wages of sin is death. That trying to live outside of the saving rule of Jesus leads to death. And so by the end of the chapter, Sheba is dead, but God's kingdom is still intact. So God's kingdom endures forever despite Sheba's rebellion. The second thing we see is that God's kingdom endures despite Joab's treachery. So Sheba sinned, but Joab also sins in this chapter. Now, <clears throat> David had appointed a man named Amasa, 
as commander over his army. Joab had previously been David's commander. So Joab gets demoted. Amasa gets promoted. Here in chapter 20, David instructs Amasa, once he hears about this uh, rebellion that Sheba is leading, he gets Amasa and he says, Okay, Amasa, I want you to go and gather all the troops of Judah. And we're going to put an end to this rebellion. And he gives him a deadline. He gives him three days to gather all these troops and get them ready for battle. Notice verse 5, chapter 20, verse 5. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. Now, as you read that, it might sound like Amasa is intentionally dragging his feet. And that could be the case. But it's unclear, the, the verb that's used there is unclear if his delay is intentional or unintentional. One thing that does seem to be true is that gathering all of these troops from such a large area in three days would have been difficult. I'm not a military tactician, but I'm just telling you what experts who know the geography of of Israel, they say that, that this would have been very difficult to actually have accomplished this in three days. Amasa did not have radios. He didn't have telegraphs. He, he, he didn't have satellites. He couldn't just pick up the phone and say, okay, everybody come to Jerusalem within the next three days. And when verse 5 says that he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him, it's not clear if that delay was intentional or unintentional. He might have been dragging his heels. He might have been willfully disobedient. He might have been just incompetent or Maybe it's possible that David's expectations were unrealistic, or it could be some of all those things. We can't say with certainty. What we can say, whatever the case may be, David turns now to another general named Abishai. Abishai was the brother of Joab. They've been crucial leaders in David's military, and it's at this point that Joab comes to the forefront. Now, the author does not tell us what it is that motivated Joab to do what he did, The author just reports his actions to us without really evaluating them. Joab goes to meet Amasa. He conceals a sword. He goes in. He grabs Amasa's beard, which would have been a way of of greeting a friend in, uh, in this time. So he greets him as a friend, and all the while he's reaching down, grabbing his sword, and Joab, who was a a very skilled warrior, sticks the sword into Amasa's stomach, the entrails come out, and in a single blow he kills Amasa. Now, in the past, Joab has proven to be effective, but not always subordinate. He does not always stay in line. In the past, he had killed some of David's enemies, but in this case, he's not striking David's enemy. He's killing David's appointed general. This is a man whom David had appointed to do this task. And Joab goes against what David says, and he kills Amasa unjustly. When you think about it, although the chapter has the heading, Sheba's Rebellion, it's striking how much Sheba and Joab have in common. Both of them are exceedingly ambitious for power. Both of them are are trying to leverage the circumstances to put themselves in a place of of more power. The difference is Sheba is ineffective and Joab is much more effective at what he's trying to do. He continues to act in David's interest while also acting in his own interest. Uh, 
And so here in chapter 20, David does not punish Joab immediately, but if you glance ahead, when David is on his deathbed, he later tells his son Solomon not to let Joab die in peace. So it's clear that David holds Joab accountable for what he does here, and he sees this as treacherous. So God endures, God's kingdom endures despite Sheba's rebellion and despite Joab's treachery. And then third, God's kingdom endures despite David's selfishness. Now this is one that does not jump off the page as, uh, as clearly as those first two. There is a single verse in this chapter that it would be very easy for us to skim over but I don't want us to do that. I want us to pause and uh, really take to heart the awfulness of what we read in verse 3. Look with me at verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if... In widowhood. Now, this is another example of sometimes the the author of Scripture just reports what happened to us without necessarily evaluating it. Um, he tells us about what Joab did. He doesn't go off saying, "Hey, this was sinful." He he hints at it in certain ways. He hints at David's sin here when he talks about the way that these women lived for the rest of their life. If you're just looking for my personal opinion of all the bad things that happen in this chapter, verse 3 may be the saddest of all. So who are these ten concubines? A concubine is someone with whom the king would engage in sexual activity but without being married to her. And sometimes people get confused because the Bible tells us about these things and we assume that David is the hero of the story and so because David did this it must have been right. But just because God is telling us what David did, he's not con condoning this activity. He's not saying, hey, here's a great example of what you should do. In fact, the opposite is true. God is showing us that His kingdom endures despite the sinful selfishness of someone like David. These women in particular, these ten women, they had been used by David. Then, uh, a few chapters ago, when David's son Absalom rebelled against his father, David. Absalom went into Jerusalem. He ran David out of Jerusalem. He goes into Jerusalem. And in chapter 16, we're told that Absalom uh, went up on a, a roof and he um, had sexual relations with these ten women. Now, the text does not explicitly say that Absalom assaulted them, but it is impossible to consider what happened consensual because of the power dynamic, if nothing else. So these ten women had been used by David, then assaulted by Absalom. Now David essentially puts them under house arrest. He puts them in a, in a house under guard, we're told in verse 3. He does provide for them, but he does not go into them, meaning he does not continue to have relations with them. So he, and we're told at the end of verse 3, they, they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. 
So David used them, Absalom abused them, and then David now discards them. Now, I am not suggesting that the righteous thing for David to do was to maintain these women as concubines. I'm suggesting that the righteous thing for David to do would be to repent of what he had done and of what Absalom had done and to let these women go free and live their lives. There was no reason for David to keep these women from potential companionship, from their family. I mean, surely these women, they had siblings. They had possibly parents still alive. There's no reason why these women could not have been let free to go and be married and have families of their own. Uh, and yet, David keeps them. It's a selfish and cowardly act. For the remainder of their lives, they are kept in this house under guard, living as if widows. Sin plus sin does not equal righteousness. When David saw what Absalom had done... It could have been a wake-up call about how he too had sinned against these women. He has an opportunity in this moment to do right by them. Instead, his actions are deeply selfish and saddening. So we see God's kingdom enduring despite the rebellion of Sheba, despite the treachery of Joab, and despite the selfishness of David. And on and on as you read the rest of the Bible, you see this same truth being echoed throughout history. God's kingdom is going to endure despite the idolatry of David's son Solomon and Israel's later kings. God's kingdom is going to endure despite the prideful arrogance of foreign kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Ahasuerus. God's kingdom is going to endure despite the wicked hatred of a man named Haman who desired to wipe out the Jewish people. God's kingdom is going to endure despite the evil intentions of Herod who tried to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. God's kingdom is going to, to endure despite the opposition of the Pharisees and scribes who plotted and found a way to put Jesus to death. God's kingdom is going to endure despite the betrayal of Judas Iscariot who hands Jesus over to them. And God's kingdom is going to endure despite the cowardice of Pontius Pilate who handed him over to his soldiers to take Jesus out to the place of the skull and nail him to a cross until he was dead. And at the end of time, the book of Revelation says that there's going to be an angel who will blow a trumpet and there will be loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. The great irony at the center of all this is that the king who is going to reign forever and ever is the lamb who was slain. The slain lamb is the one who is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so this morning as we take the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder to us not only that the lamb was slain, but also that the king is coming again to reign when we take the Lord's Supper, we sometimes, we often place a strong emphasis on the remembering aspect of it. Every Baptist church I've ever been in that has a table like ours, there's a, a phrase carved into it, this do in remembrance of me, because that's what Jesus said. Paul gives us instructions for that in 1 Corinthians 11, do this in remembrance of me. But we also need to hear what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, in the very next verse after he says, Do this in remembrance of me, Paul says, 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So the Lord's Supper is not just about looking back and remembering. It's also about looking forward and proclaiming what God is going to do in Christ. So we proclaim the death of the Lamb who will reign forever and ever. We proclaim the resurrection of the King, which is God's assurance to the world that He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. I, I was... Yesterday, um, I was, we were at a, at a birthday party, and uh, I felt my phone buzz in my pocket, and I, I, opened, I looked at it, and uh, it was a news alert about Jeffrey Epstein uh, killing himself in, in prison, the man who had uh, committed awful acts of you know, trafficking and all sorts of awful things. And uh, I saw this, this uh, headline about one of the survivors of his abuse who talked about how she was angry that, uh, that there would never be a day when he would come to justice. And as I read that, I thought, there does need to be justice in this life. There, he, he is dead, but his victims are still alive. And so, you know, I pray that there will be justice, some, some kind of justice done for them. But there is coming a day God has fixed that day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. And He's not just going to judge people that we esteem to be the worst, awful kind of sinner. He's going to, he's going to judge people that we would look at and think, wow, they seem like pretty good people. So every one of us is going to have to stand that day. The Lord's Supper is a way that we proclaim that day. We proclaim His death until He comes. And because we're proclaiming that truth, we also need to heed the warning from the very next verse in 1 Corinthians 11, which says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So our worthiness to take the Lord's Supper does not come from us. It comes from Christ alone. I heard a story once about this uh, Scottish pastor who looked out over his congregation one Sunday as they were taking the Lord's Supper. It was, it was a common practice then, and it still is in a lot of places, in a lot of churches today. Uh, whereas we typically have deacons who take the bread and cup and, and distribute them in the, to people in the pews in some places today and, in, and throughout history, it's been common for, for people to come forward to the table and to take the bread and the cup there. And so the pastor looked out, and he saw this woman who was sitting in her pew and she was just weeping and she was refusing to come to the table. And so this pastor walked out and sat in the pew next to her. He put his arm around her and he listened as she was confessing her sin. And she was praying about how convicted she was and saying that she did not feel worthy to take the bread and the cup. And so that pastor looked at her and he said, Take it, Lassie. It is meant for sinners. And so here's my humble suggestion to you. If you feel that you are worthy in yourself to take the Lord's Supper, then you are taking it in an un unworthy manner, and I would urge you not to take it. If you feel that you in your own self, that you are worthy. If you feel that there is nothing that God could do to make you worthy to take the Lord's Supper, then you're taking it in an unworthy manner, so don't take it. 
But if you feel convicted by your sin, and if you feel that your worthiness to take the Lord's Supper is not in you but in Christ alone, then you are ready to receive it in a worthy manner. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank You, God, that our worth and our worthiness to come before You to receive the bread and the cup is not in us. It is not in anything we are nor anything we can do, but it is in Christ alone that we have hope. And it is in Christ alone that we are worthy to receive what You have done for us. And so, Lord, now as we come to this time when we receive the bread and the cup, I pray, Lord, that You would help each one of us as we hold the bread, as we hold the cup, Lord, that we would discern the body and blood of Jesus. Lord, that we would look to You in faith, that we would turn from sin. God, help us to do that now. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chad and Brian are going to come forward and help me uh, this morning. The first element that we take in the Lord's Supper is the bread, which helps us to remember and proclaim